excuse me, I'm getting over a cold, so if you see me drinking my tea up here, it's trying to prepare me to preach later. Um, so I should really make you do most of the talking. Uh, what we're going to see in, uh, in Exodus chapter 3 especially, um, the people cry out to the Lord and God comes uh, to Moses. And, uh, and it says, it's narrated for us, it's not God speaking to Moses, but it says, and the Lord heard their cries, the Lord saw, and the Lord knew. And he remembered his covenant, uh, that God actually hears and knows about affliction and oppression and all of these things. Where does this uh, show up in, in our understanding of the gospel in the New Testament? That God is the God who cares about injustice and oppression, uh, who comes to release people. Where does it show up? Teresa. He hears and he knows the plight of his people. Yeah. How is it that Christ knows the plight of his people? What did he do? It can't be said of any other supposed God. He entered into our existence. By justice and oppression, he was taken away. And who would consider his generation? Uh, you know, we, we see this idea that, that God not only knows and hears about oppression, but he experienced oppression. He cares about his people. Uh, and he's also the one that, that frees us from oppression. Do you remember when uh, the Pharisees in the New Testament were speaking of Jesus? Uh, and they said, he drives out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. And what did Jesus say? He told them a parable. And it's this parable that's hard to wrap our minds around, but it's about a, a strong man and somebody breaking into his house. He says, how can you break into a strong man's house and steal his goods unless you first bind the strong man? Well, that parable was about him breaking into where Satan has dominion and binding him and saying, no, 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 no. I'm the one that's in control, and I take back from you those things that you have taken from God. These are his people. And I release them from oppression. I release them from affliction. I go forth and I proclaim the good news to those who are oppressed. Isn't that what he says in, in Luke chapter 4? Uh, in, in Matthew chapter 10, maybe? Um, you know, th this is what Christ does. This is what we know. So what we see in the Exodus is preparing us to see Christ. Uh, the last thing I have from Sarna here becomes a paradigm for future redemption. On and on and on through the Old Testament, you'll find uh, the Jews, the Israelites, going back to this moment, to the Exodus, and they use it as their paradigm. Uh, when they are downtrodden, uh, when their sin rises up again, they go back and they say, ah, but the Lord saved us from Egypt. He brought us out of the fiery furnace of affliction. Well, how does this point us to the redemption that we know in Christ? What do you think? No idea? How does this picture of redemption? So, so Sarna says, this guy, uh, says that, that the exodus becomes a paradigm for God's people. That they, they begin to see God's redemptive acts later in history through the lens of the Exodus. Uh, we were oppressed, we were afflicted, but God heard us and he brought us out. And so how does that prepare us also for, for what the Lord does? Chris.
Yeah, don't let your freedom, uh, you know, you, you find this again and again and again. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, um, we use, Paul points to this, to the Exodus, as another paradigm for life in him. And it says, they all passed through the water, they were all baptized, they all drank of the same spiritual rock, and that rock was Christ. He's talking about God's provision through the Exodus event. For the people of old, and he uses the paradigm now. He says, and so don't be uh, rebellious like they were. And their bodies fell, and they were scattered all over the wilderness for 40 years. The Lord rejected them. It becomes a picture not only of, of redemption, but also of, of what will you do with this freedom you've been given. Don't use your freedom in Christ as an opportunity for the flesh, he says uh, to the Galatians, but uh, to serve one another. Because now you can do that. You've been freed to serve. And what's the first thing that happens to Israel after they come out? Well, they've been working, creating cities and storehouses, Pithom and Ramses and all these, these cities and all the, the splendor of the Egyptians. And they come out, and through that whole period with the tabernacle, the Lord says, there are people in your midst that have gifts. There are people in your midst that know how to cut stone and know how to work with leather and know how to embroider and know how to make sculptures and all these other things, and I need those people. I've been preparing them for this. And so make sure they use their gifts to, to now serve me. Isn't it a picture of what the Lord does in his church? Great, thank you. I, I've got two more. I've added to Sarna a little bit. Um, yeah. Yeah, Jay. Go back and tell them what you see. Uh, and, uh, and the Pharisees say likewise. Show us a sign. Christ says, don't you know how to read the signs? They're everywhere. <laughs> Look at what I'm doing. Uh, I'm not going to give you any more signs. I'm going to give you the sign of Jonah. Uh, but you should see already what I've told John when he sent his disciples. Look at what I'm doing. I'm proclaiming. I'm freeing. I'm delivering. I'm doing these things. And you should, you should recognize that. Absolutely. Good. Um, so two more I've added from, uh, from Sarna. Um, so the other importance here, uh, I think Steve already mentioned it, that we get this revelation of the Lord. Who is Yahweh? Who is the Lord of his people? And that is incredibly important for the Old Testament. Uh, when we get to chapter 34, you'll see the Lord come down and proclaim his name, the Lord, the Lord, a God gracious and compassionate, abounding in steadfast love and forgiving uh, iniquity and transgression and sin, yet he does not let the guilty go unpunished. Uh, and, it, and it speaks of God's steadfast love. You will see that quoted almost verbatim everywhere in the Old Testament. And so if you get an understanding of, of Exodus, uh, this is what I, I think one of the, the main benefits of Exodus. There are a few keys to understanding the rest of the Old Testament and preparing us to see the New Testament. Uh, one of them is Exodus. If you have a solid handle on Genesis, Exodus, and Deuteronomy, you can read most of the rest of the Old Testament very intelligently. Now, there are lots of other things that you need to know, uh, but these are really the foundational documents. Um, how was Israel created? Uh, how was the world created? What should we think about everything? And what should we think about God's promise to his people? What should we think about God's redemption? And what should the Old Testament Israelites think about the land they were brought into? So Genesis, Exodus, and Deuteronomy. Uh, and you can, go, you can fly through the minor prophets and go, oh, I've seen this. Uh, I've seen that. I know where this is coming from, if you have those three. And, and Exodus is one of these foundational 
uh, keys. Now, the reason we're not doing Genesis is because I taught that last year uh, with the junior high. So you're getting the leftovers, and that's okay. Uh, we also went through Genesis not too long ago in, uh, in our evening services, if you remember that. We read uh, almost the entire book. It was a wonderful time together. Uh, maybe someday we'll, we'll do Deuteronomy as well. Um, so it, it unlocks the, the Old Testament and prepares us for the New Testament. Uh, but we see this in, in Jesus as well, that it's a revelation of the Father. Uh, Jesus reveals himself as the one who reveals the Father. What does it say in the beginning of John? No one has seen the Father, uh, but we have seen his glory. Glory is the only one from the Father, full of grace and truth. And that, by the way, is almost a quotation of Exodus chapter 34. Grace and truth, steadfast love and faithfulness. Uh, those are the ways we could understand that. Mercy and truth, mercy and faithfulness, grace and truth. Uh, and then on throughout the, the Gospel of John, Jesus gives these seven statements where he says, I am. I am this, I am that. Before Abraham was, I tell you, I am. And they picked up, at that point, stones uh, to put him to death because they thought he was blaspheming. Why? He was claiming to be God, claiming to be equal with the Father. He was using the divine name and saying, here it is. Philip, have you been with me so long and you don't already know me? How can you say, show me the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I'm revealing him. There's this, there's this importance. We'll see it in Exodus, and it prepares us for the New Testament. Uh, lastly, uh, somebody already mentioned, it teaches God's moral character. What is the church to do once we have been saved to him? How should we worship him? How should we live in relation to him? And what should be our understanding of him and his character? Great. So with the remaining uh, 30 minutes, <clears throat> any questions about, about Exodus just in general before we move to the text itself? Any burning questions that you just you want to know and want to ask somebody who can only point you in the direction of much more knowledgeable people? Who wrote it? Uh, well, good question. Uh, the traditional understanding is that Moses wrote it. Um, and that was the traditional understanding until about 150 years ago when all the liberals said, no, 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 no. It was like 17 different people and all these editors, and they just cobbled it together. Uh, and so there are all these theories, which are not important for you to know. Uh, it's important to know that, uh, that it's bunk, <laughs> basically. Uh, all their theories, they, they look at it and they say, well, um, in this section, it calls God Yahweh. But in this section, it calls God Elohim. And so clearly... Uh, the same author would not have called God these two different names in two different circumstances. And that points to two separate authors. And the hairs get raised on the back of your neck, and it sounds really important. Uh, but when you, I mean, think about it. Uh, the, the idea is that, that Moses wrote these probably during the wilderness wanderings. The first five books of the Old Testament we call the Pentateuch, the Torah, uh, in, in the Jewish understanding of it. Um, that, that Moses wrote these, he had 40 years. While the, while the Israelites are wandering through the desert, to put all these things down. If you look at any modern writer who has this wide berth of, of works, you will see incredible changes from one end to the other. You will see poets uh, that change the way they speak of things. One of my professors at Gordon-Conwell used to, used to talk about uh, Keats. I don't even know who he is. Some Irish poet uh, that shows how non-cultural I am. Okay? Um, but he, he wrote over a period of, of something like 40 or 50 years. And if you compare his early work, the early work of Keats, the later work, you know, from the outside, you would look at it and say, oh, that's not even the same thing. It's not the same person. He's not talking about the same ideas. Well, of course not. There's, there's something that happens. Um, and, and he had more than ample opportunity to write these things. Uh, and it shows us, you know, a lot of these things 
um, when you look at what these texts say, um, it invites the people who were reading them, who were experiencing these things, to check up on them. You know, over and over again in the Old Testament, we read, and these things are still there to this day. Well, they're not there now when we're reading it, but when they were written, they actually were. It's almost inviting you to go back and say, well, check all these things out. Make sure that it's actually the, the way that, that it is. Yeah, great. Any other burning questions? Teresa. I've, I've heard, <coughs> excuse me, I've heard that um, question raised before. Because when you get to the text, it says, well, it could be the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds or maybe even the, the, the marsh. But then that really is a miracle, isn't it? That the Lord would drown all of Pharaoh's army in two inches of water. <laughs> and, so, and so we've got to deal with, with all of these things. And, and that's what the scholars like to do. Uh, they're like, oh, well, this couldn't have happened. But the, the, um, the alternatives that they come up with are much more elaborate than saying, well, that's clearly the way that it happened. How do you account for all of Pharaoh's army being you know, drowned in the sea of reeds and all these other things? And you've got to bring in so much more to make it make sense in a simply naturalistic way um, that it's, it's more simple for us to read the, the word and say, well, well maybe it was. Uh, maybe, it, who knows how much water was there, but it was a miracle, and that's what we're supposed to understand. There was enough water that it was a wall on the left and a wall on the right. So we don't go by just, well, it says Sea of Reeds, so who knows? There, there are lots of clues in the passage uh, that, that tell us what was actually going on. It was a miraculous thing. Uh, we we're supposed to see that. Yeah, absolutely. Good questions, good questions. Um, so nobody knows. We have good guesses as to when these things happen, even Conservative scholars have no idea. Uh, sometime maybe around 1400 B.C. We know that David lived at about 1000 B.C. Uh, that before David, uh, Saul was king for a long time. Before Saul, there was the period of the judges for about somewhere around 300 years. Uh, and then if you go back, you've got the wilderness wanderings and the entering the land and all those things. And so it's hard to pinpoint, but maybe around 1400, maybe 1500. Uh, so we're not entirely sure. Uh, and that contributes to the fact that when we get to talking about the Pharaoh, and we'll, we'll read today, nobody has any idea who he is. Uh, but we'll see a, a fun little clue there uh, when we read about Pharaoh. So let's turn to the passage, Exodus chapter 1. <coughs> I'm going to ask for three volunteers, please. Uh, for the sake of what we're reading together, I want to ask three volunteers who have the ESV translation, because that's generally going to be what we all have. I know we can... We can deal with, with minor translational difficulties and differences. Uh, but three volunteers who are reading from the ESV, it's not the sacred translation, um, but that's what we've got. Um, so, Mike, I'm going to ask you to, to read um, verses 1 through 14 of chapter 1. Becky, I saw your hand. I'm going to ask you to read the rest of chapter 1, verses 15 through 22. And one more volunteer. Eric, can you grab the first 10 verses of Exodus chapter 2. And these are really the three scenes that we find in this, this opening passage. Uh, the beginning of chapter 1, the end of chapter 1, the beginning of chapter 2. Mike, please start us off.
Thank you. Picking up at verse 15, Becky. Thank you. Chapter 2, Eric. Thank you. So probably the first thing that you see when you read this passage, and I, I know a lot of us have probably already studied Exodus before. That's okay. Um, hopefully we'll, we'll see some other things here. We'll at least be encouraged uh, by reading these things together. But one of the first things you see uh, is this rich narrative. Um, it is sparse. It's not the way that we would write. There are not many details here other than what is needed. And Hebrew narrative, as a rule, does this. It is sparse, and then you can tell where the emphasis is sometimes because it will slow down. Almost like a zoom lens, it will, it will get in closer and you'll get to see what's happening. Uh, and there are a few places uh, through here that we see that. Um, but, but the other thing that you notice is that this is a continuing story. The, uh, in the King James, I think it, it does very well with the first verse uh, the first word in the King James is now. Now, these are the names. Now, if, if in fact, I just said it. Uh, if you're in conversation, that word is called a conjunction. Uh, it's going to connect what came before and what comes after, and that's what we see in Exodus. It's not starting uh, out of, you know, ex nihilo. Now, uh, this is not a story that comes out of nowhere, but we get this list of 70 persons. Now, these are the names. In fact, that's the Hebrew word, uh, that, that gives actually two words. That's the Hebrew title for this book. Va'elah Bashimot. Now these are the names. 
we call it Exodus, that sounds pretty good, uh, but they call it, now these are the names. Uh, and it's this idea that it's, it's connected, and we see this, uh, this list of 70 persons. Now, you don't have the benefit of having just read and studied Ex or Genesis together, uh, but you can guess where this list comes from, right? Uh, we see in the Chronicle of Joseph, when he goes down, it is almost verbatim the same list that we find in Genesis 46. There's a little bit of, uh, of difference here. It talks about Joseph already being there. There's a little more emphasis on that uh, in Genesis. But it starts here with a people that are already there. Um, so Exodus picks up where Genesis leaves off. Now, the way I want to have you looking at this first scene, I think these three scenes uh, really show us God's sovereignty. They show us God's sovereignty in three different areas. The first one uh, is God's sovereignty over affliction. I think the second main scene is God's sovereignty over blessing. And third, God's sovereignty over deliverance. So affliction, blessing, and deliverance, if that helps you just to frame what's happening here. But we see over and over and over again uh, that, that the Lord is blessing his people. And that is a curious thing because at least in these first 10 or uh, I think it was, was it 15 verses, 14 verses, the name of God never shows up, never shows up. Uh, it's simply given to us as the people went down, they were there, they increased, the Egyptians didn't like it, and they tried to afflict them. Now, what can account, <laughs> obviously, uh, I've already given it away, God's sovereignty over affliction, uh, but what can account, it says in verse 7, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, and they multiplied, and they grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, what can account for that? What do you think? And how do you know? So there's the second question. What can account for it, and how do you know that this is what's behind the narrative? Kathy. Okay. 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 So what's behind it? What is causing this increase? Or who is causing this increase? You're exactly right. That there's this, there's this memory, and there was this point where, you know what, Pharaoh, for a while in Egypt, they were, they were blessing the Israelites. And in fact, what you find in, in Egyptian history is that they are open to other nations coming and dwelling, and, and they're not very nationalistic at this time, like we think of ourselves even being nationalistic. So there, there's this, uh, this commonality. Steve, you were going to add something there. So who is behind the flourishing? Absolutely. Yeah. So elaborate on that for us, Steve. It shows up first when the Lord is talking about the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. And it's the same language. We could almost call it teeming. Team upon the earth and, and multiply and fill it. And, it. and it's the same three verbs. But it shows up again when God creates man, Adam and Eve. And it shows up again after uh, the flood and Noah and his family come out. And the Lord comes and he says to them, be fruitful and multiply, and increase, and fill the earth. And here we see God's people doing what God has called his people to do. And so it points us not only back to Genesis 46 and this genealogy, but all the way back to the beginning and saying, look at the Lord behind his people. Now, uh, there's a, a fun little uh, 
distinction here. What is it, uh, what is it that um, Pharaoh specifically does not want them to do? Take a look at verse 10. Don't multiply and, and right, right. So we're going we're gonna to get to that. And that's a, so that's an interesting, maybe we'll have time for that. Um, so could, could you read verse 10 for us there? There are a few things that Pharaoh doesn't want. <coughs> don't multiply. Don't fight against us. Don't leave the land. They want them small, they want them subservient, they want them here. They don't want them there, they want them here, but they don't want too many of them because they don't want a force that they can't reckon with. This is setting up the rest of the book of Exodus because this is exactly what we'll see. They oppress and the people grow. God shows up in might and in power and eventually all of the magicians say, this is the hand of the Lord fighting against us. And when they're crossing the Red Sea, the Lord says, you will see how I will fight for you. Egypt has enemies that they don't even know of yet because it's the Lord Yahweh, and he's going to fight against them. And eventually, what's he going to do? He's going to take his people out of the land. So there's this incredible irony, and this is one of the places where the narrative slows down. Don't let them grow, don't let them fight, and don't let them leave, and the Lord says, done. It's all done because I'm the one who's stepping in, and I'm sovereign over these things. So what is their policy? Jay. One, one commentator I heard uh, said, you know, you could, you could interpret that as the midwives saying, these Hebrews are like animals. They don't, they don't wait for us. They just go off somewhere. They birth and they get back to work and they, you know, they're still washing the dishes when they're done, you know. Uh, and and that's, that's sort of the picture. But it's this, this incredible teeming and, and filling and strength. These same words will show up several other times in the passage. Take a look at verse 7. They multiplied, they grew exceedingly strong. Take a look at verse 9. He said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty. There are a lot of them, and they're strong. Take a look at verse 20. So God dwelt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. They are doing exactly what, what Egypt does not want them to do, and we know that they're doing it because the hand of the Lord is behind all of it. He is sovereign over their increase, but he's also sovereign over their affliction. Now, here is a question that comes up sometimes. Um, because we say, well, well, what would the Lord be doing? Why did he leave them there to be afflicted? Couldn't the Lord have, I mean, if the Lord was, was sovereign all the way back in Genesis with this famine that brought them down to the land, couldn't he have been sovereign to give food in the land of Canaan and, and allow his people to flourish there? Couldn't he have saved them from all that affliction? Couldn't he have had these things happen there? But what happens instead is that they come down to Egypt, and for 400 years they are subject to somebody else, and they are slaves. So, so the, the skeptics look and they say, well, clearly this God is not caring for his people. Uh, and so how do you answer that? Bill, what would you say? 
Mm. Mm. We see that in the New Testament, too. Through many trials, we must enter the kingdom of God. Uh, so it's, it's not different for us. When we say, well, well, the Lord might have been doing something in affliction that he would not have been doing in prosperity. Maybe you remember last week in Psalm 30. What did David say? In my prosperity, I said, I shall never be moved. And it's this, it's this spirit of self-sufficiency. Um, but the Lord is training his people not to be self-sufficient, but to be God-sufficient. Bill, yeah, go ahead. Uh, I think it, it also shows that uh, he took the people into the wilderness to be able to do nothing for themselves. Mm. That's complete dependence on God. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And all the time, bickering and complaining. Wasn't it better when we had cucumbers? <laughs> and we were slaves every day, but we had cucumbers. That was nice. You know, and, and what a picture. When we, when we read these things, it's easy for us to look down our noses on the Israelites and think, we would never do this. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. <laughs> yes, we do. Jay. Absolutely. Interestingly enough, that phrase, stiff-necked people, comes from Exodus. We'll see it when we get to the golden calf. The Lord says, for this people is a stiff-necked people. If I were to go up among them, I would consume them. So just, Moses, take them away. <laughs> I don't want to look at them. I don't want to be anywhere near them. Yeah, but that, it's the same thing. And the Lord shows, even after they've been redeemed, they continue in this direction. Uh, let's all turn to Genesis. Genesis chapter 15. There's an incredibly important passage and a promise there. And perhaps you remember Genesis 15. It's the passage where the Lord comes down in a smoking pot and passes between uh, the animals and, and cuts a covenant with Abram. Now, could I get somebody to read for us uh, Genesis 15, verses 12 through 16, please? Genesis 15, verses 12 through 16. Any translation? So if you're languishing there with your NIV, go ahead and read. Eric. This was not a surprise. It wasn't a surprise to the Lord. It should not have been a surprise to the people. God says to Abram, 
your descendants are going to go to a land that is not theirs and they will serve others and they will be there afflicted for 400 years. But even in that affliction, what is the Lord doing? What do we see in this passage here in Genesis? Why would the Lord allow his people to be afflicted? What is he preparing? Yes, yes, verse 16. They shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What do we find repeated when the people come into the land and the way that they should treat uh, those that are outside Israel? Complete destruction. Should they marry their daughters? Why? They will be a snare to you. The Lord at this point, now I don't want to contradict myself, but we're going to be saying almost the exact opposite in the sermon today. At this point, uh, with his theocratic kingdom that he's establishing, he is sequestering them off and saying, I'm going to put you in a place where you can be cohesive and, and you can be your own people. In fact, when you come into the land of Egypt, uh, Joseph says, we'll put you in Goshen because the Egyptians don't really like shepherds. And you'll get your own place your own area where you can flourish, where you can grow, where you can become a powerful nation. And the Lord says, and then I will bring them back and I will use them as objects of my judgment, tools of my judgment, if you will, on, on the Amorites. Now, before that, uh, what else is the Lord doing? Before verse 16, thank you, Kathy. Verse 14, what do you see? They're given great wealth. So they're being supplied by all these things. They're receiving gifts. What else is in verse 14? Judgment on the Egyptians. When we get to the plagues, we're going to see this uh, because Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should let you go? In fact, uh, I'm not going to let you go. I'm going to turn up the heat of the affliction a little bit more. I'm going to take away your straw, and I'm going to let you make bricks, and you're going to have to still uh, make all the same bricks, and you're going to have to gather your own straw, and so you've got double duty on your affliction and your slavery. And the people cry out to the Lord again, and do you remember what the Lord says there? He says that I'm, I'm doing this, and I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let you go, that he will have judgment on Pharaoh, that the reality of these things will be seen. The Lord is preparing judgment through his people that he has chosen. So this affliction is, in a sense, good for the Israelites. We've already seen that when they come out, they need to be taught by affliction, don't they? They need to grow through their affliction and appreciation of the Lord who provides for them. Also, there's this wickedness that the Lord is dealing with, and the Lord could have wiped out the Amorites 400 years prior to this, couldn't he? He said, no, 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 I'm going to wait for sin to increase, and at the right time, Everybody will be able to look at it and be able to say, yep, they had that coming. They had that coming. Which is one of those things that, that people who are non-believers who don't believe the scriptures will say, how could God tell his people to go in and kill all these people? Well, he was bringing judgment against the people that had turned from him and were, were engaged in wicked practices. Is that a, a comment there, Steve?
absolutely. And we are out of time, predictably. We got to the first scene. Um, and we didn't even finish that. Um, some, some closing thoughts. Does the Lord still do this for his people? Is he still sovereign over our affliction? Does he still teach us? Does he still prepare judgment for others through the affliction of his people? Yeah, he does. Um, take a look at, uh, I think I've got it marked down here. 1 Peter chapter 4. I'm going with the controversial one because I would imagine that, that here in this room we would all agree with that first statement. The Lord is still sovereign over our affliction, does still teach his people, does still prepare things and, and cause us to lean on him more than we would otherwise lean on him. Um, but let's take the controversial one, 1 Peter chapter 4. <coughs> Verses 12 uh, and following. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice. Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You see God's sovereignty over the affliction of his people. You see God preparing the fires of judgment and preparing a distinction between those who are his and those who are not his. And this happens even in the church. This is something we need to remember, uh, that the Lord has given grace uh, to his people and he even gives grace of sovereignty over affliction. Uh, let no one, um, where is it? Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, or evildoer. Yet if you suffer as a Christian, let you not be ashamed. But let you glorify God in that name. That's a good place for us to, uh, to think and to mull over as we end. Uh, let me pray to close. Oh, gracious Lord our God, we thank you that you indeed are the sovereign one. Over every situation, over every affliction, over everything that we face, you are the one who uh, ordains it and brings it, and we rest in you and your good purposes. We admit that very often, like the Israelites, we don't know and we don't understand what you're doing. We find it hard to grasp. Uh, and the, the world assaults us and says that our God is clearly not good because he allows these things to happen to his people. Uh, but let us, O oh Lord, not listen to them, but listen to you. To listen and to see your sovereignty, uh, to see the way you care for your people. Help us, O oh Lord, as we move through Exodus in this semester. Help us to see what uh, you would have us to see. We can't touch on everything. We can't talk about everything. Uh, but give us, O oh Lord, um, strong hearts with one another to encourage one another to see what you're doing with your church in these things, uh, to be prepared to see the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, we pray these things in your name and for your glory. Amen. Thank you, folks. Yes, ma'am. Affliction, blessing, and uh, deliverance. So it's God sovereign over the deliverance of, of his people by sending a deliverer. Uh, it's, a, it's a good corollary to Mary. 
uh, and saving Jesus from the hand of those that would kill all the babies. And it's this great picture for us to, to think about. Unfortunately, we didn't get to it. But Yeah, yeah, so deliverance. <coughs> yeah. Yeah, my pleasure. <coughs> Hey, Sharon. Oh, yeah. I'm feeling better now. This went so well with Michelle and Jeff. Good, that good, good, like good. Beyond our expectations. I'm glad to hear that. What was, what was the outcome? Were they? Um, assistance ceremonies. Wow. You might have them to do the officiating, and then Mike did the other piece about the scripture and how God created marriage and the man, I mean, the love through the whole thing. The That's great. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Mark. <laughs> good, good. 